Good morning, Restore. Uh, I, I'm really excited to tell you, and this is actually now that I've this might be TMI now that I'm going to say this, but this is the first morning I did not break a sweat uh, unloading the trailer. So yeah, that's worth, sorry, that's kind of gross now that I think about it, but just thought I'd let y'all know. Uh, anyway, uh, if you're new with us this morning, welcome. My name's Justin. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Restore. Uh, we're a very young new church that started here in North Houston, uh, and we are doing a series that I'm particularly excited about, uh, and I know he's been around long enough for like he always says he's excited. Uh, about what he's preaching on. But there's honestly some truth to that uh, because the letter in Thessalonians that we're in this morning is Paul's letter uh, to one of his very first, very early churches. Okay, so, so what that means is why I like this letter so much and why I think it's so profound, something that I want us to grab a hold of, uh, is this is really one of the first times we see the word church used in history. Like front and back, before Christ, after Christ. This is the first time we hear the word church used. And this is a word that Paul is addressing to us, to a church in Thessalonica that he has started. It's one of these very early churches. And so we get this kind of raw, new, authentic, real uh, uh, sort of version of what church is as Paul is trying to shape in their minds for the first time, like what they are their identity, if you will, like the reason they, they are there, the reason that they are called church. And so Paul will address uh, issues that come up pretty regularly, I think, still in church today. Uh, and he's going to address an issue this morning um, that honestly made me a little, like, I've spent more time praying and reading this week uh, for the sermon this week, only because of just some of just the confusion around it. But Paul is going to talk about the end times. Okay, so, so we are 2,000 years into church history, and so we, we have a concept in our head usually of like what end times means uh, for us, and so much of that, uh, if I can be honest for just a second, kind of unfiltered, like so much of our theology around end times I think has been shaped by bad theology. If it's been shaped by theology at all, uh, so so much of just like, like the Left Behind series and some of these things, like I understand they were popular culturally speaking, but they were not actually like, they did, a, I think, a very poor job of theologically looking at what is Paul and the other New Testament writers actually saying about the end times and the return of Jesus. And so for most of us, there's this anxiety often when we think of end times, because the end times usually gets phrased to us as like, who's in and who's out? Like, am I going to get left behind? When Jesus shows up and like looks around and is like, okay, I approve of this group of people. Y'all are coming with, y'all lucky ones, you're coming with me. But the rest of you, you're getting left behind. And the reality is, Paul's going to talk a little bit about this. Yes, there is this sense of there are going to be groups of people when Jesus returns that recognize him, that see him. But Paul's emphasis here for the, for the Thessalonians isn't necessarily like when it's going to happen or, or like even necessarily how it's going to happen. His emphasis for them, like his heart for them is, I want you to see that God's good purposes will prevail in your life ultimately. 
There's nothing you can do to thwart it. There's nothing you can do to ruin it. Like there's nothing that can happen in your life that will ultimately like go over God's good purposes for you. And so Paul's purpose when he talks to the church in Thessalonica about the end times and the return of their Jesus, his emphasis is going to be on the profound sense of unshakable hope that they have. And then he's going to finish this uh, by saying, so I want you to encourage one another and build each other up. Paul wants them to see like their uh, understanding of the end times, their uh, anticipation of it, if you will, is about how they ultimately are going to love one another. And what I'm going to do this morning, so I'm not going to, so I had, like I was going to cover at least five different books of the New Testament this morning. Uh, I brought it down to two this morning as of 930. Some of y'all are like, thank you. It's a really nice morning for brunch. Uh, So my purpose here is to kind of give us a little bit of a a comprehensive view of what Paul really said throughout his letters to his churches on the end times. Why I want to do that is because I do not think you can read any one passage where Paul talks about the end times on its own. I do not think any of the passages that Paul writes on end times can stand alone on their own. I think it's important for us to understand what he was getting at by looking comprehensively or broadly at his writings. And the reason I say this uh, is a couple of reasons. One, believe it or not, Paul himself seemed to actually change his mind a little bit on what he, how he understood the end times. Uh, And what I mean by that is in the letter that he writes here in Thessalonica, which is one of his first letters, he seems to indicate, he seems to think that he's going to be one of the ones that are alive when Jesus returns. He counts himself among those who will be alive at the return of Jesus. But if we look at some of his later letters, like Corinthians, he actually begins to admit, like, maybe I'm going to be among those who will be resurrected, who have died. And so even he seems to have, uh, like, as he develops as as a pastor and as a possible, he seems to kind of shift some of his uh, understanding uh, of what the end times, like, at least when they were going to happen. He may not necessarily shift like his foundational understanding or the hope that he has in them, but he does seem to shift, okay, maybe this isn't going to happen exactly when and how I thought it was going to happen. But he does not shift his foundation and his hope, which is Jesus is coming and his goodness for you will prevail. You will not be lost to him. This, the, the other reason that I, that I want to look a little bit comprehensively at the writings of Paul on the New Testament, uh, on, on, on the end times, is uh, because he's a very situational writer. Uh, and what I mean by that is he's addressing specific situations in the churches that he writes. Uh, and this is hard for us because as Americans we think, like, was the Bible not written for me? It was, but as a 21st century American that, like, grew up on Xbox and bagel bites, like you have a very different, maybe that was just me, I don't know. I actually bought bagel bites the other day, and my wife's like, I need you to live past 50. Like, you can't keep doing that. Um, they're just kind of like my guilty little pleasure. Uh, I was like, but I need quick lunches sometimes. Anyway, I'm not going to go into all that justification there. Uh, but the point is, like, he wrote to very specific situations in all of his letters. And so, yes, the Bible was written to you in that, like, it's a gift from God. Scripture's a gift that helps us understand the heart of God and who he is. 
also, we have to understand that Paul's writing very specifically and particularly to different groups of people and different groups of time. And so sometimes if we get tunnel vision and we kind of pick one of his little, like one of his segments or one of his letters out of all of them and say like, this is what, this is what he's saying, we can miss the fact that he was probably speaking particularly to a certain situation. Okay, so, so if, you, if you get the emails that I send out, uh, I sent out uh, here, here basically the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, uh, Paul will talk about the end times. I'm only going to start with chapter five, and that's really because Paul's kind of saying the same thing twice, saying it at the end of four and then kind of reiterating what he's saying at the beginning of five. But what he's really addressing is a group of people that are actually worried. They have real anxiety uh, about two things. One, they have real anxiety that they may have missed the return of Jesus. They're a relatively new church. They're relatively isolated. And Thessalonica was not an easy place to live. It wasn't particularly an easy place to be a Christian. They were experiencing persecution. And so there's a group of them that we think was probably becoming concerned. Wait, what if we missed it? Like, what if I've missed God's good plan for me? Like, what if somehow he's come back, he's seen like the world and he missed me? Like he overlooked me. To be honest, I think this is actually a pretty common concern. Maybe we don't phrase it in just these words. But if you're like me, so much of the anxiety, sometimes the spiritual anxiety that you have around your life, well, can I trust God? Is he there? Like deep down, we're kind of asking that question. It's like, did he miss me somehow? Does, like I hear that he's supremely good and completely loving and forgiving and redemptive, but somehow like has he missed me in this equation? Has he missed my family? Has he missed this situation that I'm undergoing? Has he somehow overlooked me in some kind of way? And so he's going to address a group of people that are asking that question, like, has God overlooked me in some kind of way? Did he miss? Did he return? And, and I don't know, he just, maybe we're kind of out here on our own and he didn't come and he doesn't see us. The second, group, the second question that some of the Thessalonians are actually asking, and he'll address this again in Corinthians, is they're wanting to know what happens to my loved ones who have died already. Okay, this is, by the way, usually as a pastor, when I, when I talk to people who process death, this is almost always the question they're asking. Someone I love has gone, and I want to know, like, where, like, are they in the presence and the goodness of God right now? But the Thessalonians are actually asking, and the Corinthians did too, uh, something kind of unique to that question is many of them are first-generation Christians. So they're asking the question, wait, there's my mother, my father, my brother, someone I love has passed, but they didn't hear this gospel. What's happened here to them? What, what, like, what, did they just miss, like, were they just born couple years too late before Paul showed up, like, actually he hadn't been to Thessalonica at this point, but like, has he, like, did he just pass away a little bit too late in the story? Is God going to be good to them? And so the second question that, that uh, I think Paul's wanting to reassure the Thessalonians is, is how the goodness of God will prevail. There will never be a moment when they look at their lives or the lives of their loved ones where they will be uh, discontent are dissatisfied with the goodness of God, with the mercy of God, with how God has come through. And so he's reassuring them on these two points, which, by the way, I think at their essence uh, is, I think, to be human. 
right? Like there are so many times, even as a parent, I want to ask the question, like, are you going to be good to my little girl? Right? Like, can I really trust you with her? Like the world's a really dark place and I can't protect her forever because I'm not you. Like I'm not God. And so they're asking these two questions. Has God overlooked me? And if he hasn't overlooked me, is he, is he going to really be good to the people I love? So this precipitates this whole conversation on the end times. And I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to tell us where we're going to land. I'm going to spoil the ending. But Paul's going to finish this by saying, after he delivers all of this, this hope that you have, build one another up. Encourage one another. What Paul will do uh, in the way that he writes about the end times is he wants them to see resurrection right, the return of Jesus as, as a continuation of what God has already started doing. It's the culmination and the completion of it, but what he's wanting to do is he's not wanting them to see, uh, like, that somehow they've got to wait for God to show up as he, like, and his, like his fullness and in his goodness and in his mercy to them. Because the, we end up with a very, um, I think in modern Christianity in particular, kind of a, a dichotomous view here that ends up being unhelpful. Uh, and what I, what I mean by that is we often think um, that the, like the return of Jesus, salvation, death, like all of this, like that's what we're getting to. Like that's the good part. We've got to kind of duck and cover right now. But what Paul wants them to see is this new life that Jesus is offering has started with you. You are not outside of God's goodness. You're not outside of his good work and his plan for you. And it's going to be a continuation. So build one another up. Love one another. Paul will actually say this in his uh, letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. Part of what we have as hope is resurrection is this means that one day we will continue and be able to love as Jesus has loved. We'll be like him. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to draw a continuous story. I, I remember as a Christian, uh, one of the early times that I actually became aware of how we sometimes uh, segment this in ways that are unhelpful, rather than seeing God's plan as something that has already started, is already beginning, isn't complete just yet, but also we're a part of this hope that, we, um, that he's offering, and so we can live with this confident reassurance that he is good. I remember uh, I was in college, actually, and I was really struggling in my faith. I was an agnostic at the time, uh, and I, was, I went to a, like it was a human trafficking awareness kind of conference, uh, and there was a couple of other Christians there, and we were, afterwards, we were discussing, like, how does, like, this is a really big issue. I didn't, I was 19 at the time, and so I just kind of, like, my eyes were just now opened up to it. Uh, and one of the Christians there was upset. And I remember asking, I was a little confused. I was like, why are you upset? Like, this is a really good, this seems like a good thing to promote awareness. It was held at a church. And she's like, because it doesn't seem like they're wanting to share the gospel with those that they're rescuing. And I remember asking the question, and this is what she said, and like, this is a, a very, I think, uh, honest kind of view of how, like, uh, an, uh, maybe an unexamined assumption that sometimes the church has. She said, well, what's the point of rescuing them if they're just going to go to hell anyway? And so she had a very honest, like, like she was, I think, like, saying up front, 
what the church has implicitly sometimes accepted is that like somehow all of this life, because what she's really saying is all of this life and all that we do and all that like whether we love each other or not doesn't really matter because we're waiting for this. And if like we can't guarantee this happens, then what's the point of all of this? And this is exactly the opposite of what Paul wants to do with his churches. He wants to say, because of this, you get to live into this more fully. Like you can be made more alive. You can love more fiercely and with more abandon. Like you can trust God more fully because this is happening here. You don't have to duck and cover and sort of wait for this, like God's good plan has started and he will not and has not and never will overlook you. Okay, so that's, that's my intro. Uh, some of you are like, that was 10 minutes. Uh, but also I want to set this up for us uh, and I promise we'll get out of here on time this morning. Um, but I want to I set this up because Paul um, very much wants his people to see resurrection and where they currently are as both connected to God's goodness, as both connected to God's victory over sin and over death. He wants to see, he wants them to see where they are currently with where they will be. And he wants to tie this all together with the same kind of hope. So, so let me read it for us. Uh, and then we'll get started to, uh, this morning. Some are like, get started. You've been going uh, let me read it for us. Starting in verse 1, we're in Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. Right? Paul's concern isn't when it's happening here. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us, be like, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Let me pray for us real quickly this morning. <clears throat> well, Father, um, would you be with us this morning? Um, as we explore a really confusing topic, uh, one that Christians have, quite frankly, always disagreed with one another on, um, have sometimes never really come to a consensus, Father, would you help us to see what um, you want us to see? Father, would you help us to know um, and trust your goodness and your mercy and the forgiveness of sins? Father, would you help us to know that your redemptive plan for our life, your restoration of us cannot be thwarted. It will never be incomplete. Father, you were faithfully guiding and leading and loving us. We need you. Show us how to love one another, Father. We need that too. We pray all of this this morning in your name. Amen.
Okay, so uh, Paul is, um, Paul is, is going to start off with some, some pretty strong language around. They, there's going to be two groups of people, uh, and one of them is going to be caught relatively unaware here, and the other group is going to find something familiar here. Okay, then he's going he's gonna to say there's, there's one group that's, that's on this path towards destruction, uh, and there's going to be this other group uh, that's sort of like used to the light. Uh, and so when this happens, like it's going to be familiar to them. Either way, both groups of people, it's going to come quick. There's going to be some suddenness to it. He evokes language of like labor is starting. Like there's this moment of like it's going to be unexpected. But even, even the analogy that Paul uses with that, like the unexpected announcement of labor, well, you, you've been pregnant for nine months. Like, there's also still an awareness of like, this will happen, but the moment that it happens, like you're still kind of surprised. Uh, I remember that, that was true for us when, when we started labor. It was when my wife started labor. She hates it when I say we. Uh, it was her uh, doing all the work that day. Um, but I remember like the moment, like she's like, I think we got to go to the hospital. I was like, I don't, we could probably sleep in and then maybe check again. And she's like, no, no, we got to go to the hospital. Like there's still this moment of like, it's happening. And that wasn't me like really wanting to sleep in. It was just me like, is this going to happen? Like, what do I do? Like, there's just kind of this panic that both of you have in these moments. Right. Um, but he's, he's describing something like, you know, is going to happen. And yet there's going to be some suddenness to it, some quickness to it. Okay, so what is Paul saying here? Um, well, so a couple of things I want, I want to just say here. Uh, Christians throughout history have never been able to come to a total consensus on what the end times will mean uh, or even how like God's judgment in those end times will look like. Okay, so I want to be sensitive to that in the sense of like you guys, it's like there's a lot of different spiritual traditions, like histories that restore, uh, and you may have heard something one way or another, and I'm not going to challenge all the different kinds of views. What I am going to do this morning often is try to make suggestions because I want to stand here and tell you with all honesty and sincerity, I don't know. I spent time reading Douglas Campbell, Herman Bavink, N.T. Wright, like all the different authors that really dive into this stuff, and none of them have a real consensus on it. There's, there's kind of some broad themes that they grab a hold of, uh, but I want to stand here and just stand before you guys and say, like, there's parts of this that I am uncertain of, and so I will make suggestions where I can, um, but what I do want to do is help us grab the essence of what Paul wants to leave the Thessalonians with, which, as I've said earlier, is... In all of this, you've got hope. Build one another up and encourage one another. Uh, so what is all of this language that Paul's using around? Uh, there's, there's uh, basically, he says, right, there's a group of people that says, there's peace and safety. And then also, like, and then right after that, there's destruction. Then he's going to use analogies of, like, drunk and sober, and he's going to use analogies of, like, night and day. What Paul is getting at here. Uh, he'll do this in Corinthians. He says similar arguments in Romans. Uh, is he's drawing the analogy of when Jesus saves us, right? When he grabs a hold of our hearts, when he forgives our sins, when he redeems our souls, like we begin, like our mindset begins to change. How we see the world, how we understand love, like how we see our place in the world begins to change. Our hearts begin to soften right? I've not come to give you hearts of stone. I've come to give you hearts of flesh. And so what Paul's driving at here is he sees sin. And again, I want to like comprehensively kind of tie in some of what we've been learning. He sees sin as relational. 
He sees sin as something that is damaging to you and to the people around you. So when God begins to soften our hearts, giving us hearts of flesh, showing us how to forgive and how to love, one of the things that I think becomes readily apparent is one, we, we start to gr- get a sense of awareness of our own selfishness. Or like our own like selfish tendencies. The second thing I think we become aware of is how often like our own selfishness is sort of used to like propel ourselves forward, sometimes even at the expense of others. And so for Paul, sin isn't like I want to like his his sense of sin isn't uh, and almost never is in any of his letters this sense of like there's one group of people and they're going to have like the moral discipline like they're going to be able to keep themselves under control than this other group of people and that group of people when Jesus comes it's going to work out way better for them than this other group that just didn't have the moral discipline he doesn't see it that way he sees sin I think actually very similar to the way that we understand addiction. So this is my background. I was a counselor before I became a pastor. Uh, And addiction works in a cycle. We call it often a shame cycle, right? And how it works often is like the more we have whatever it is that we feel like we need to be okay, drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, whatever it is, work. We, We grab that thing. Well, the more we grab at it, often the more ashamed of ourselves we feel. Because like, I don't know, I'm, I shouldn't be doing this. Like, I, if everybody really knew who I was or they understood, like, some of, like, uh, some of the hypocrisy here, like, there's shame that grabs a hold of you. As that shame grabs a hold, what ends up happening often as it works like a cycle is that we then run back to the addiction to try and alleviate that shame, like, numb ourselves to that shame. Paul sees sin very similarly. He sees sin uh, not necessarily as something that you do because, like, you just weren't moral enough, right? Like, somehow, like, you came, and some of us have been in toxic churches, like, there is, like, morality is ranked, and it's often, like, ranked, like, tied closely to sort of, like, self-discipline. And oftentimes, we're like, oh, I just, I never have enough self-discipline to ever, like, reach the level of righteousness that this group of people is. And so much of the time, those standards of righteousness are arbitrary. It's based on culture, it's based on whoever's in charge at the time. It says, this is our standard. we got to reach this. Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to look at their sin as something as like, you, like, good thing for you guys. Y'all had more moral discipline than the rest of everybody else, and so, like, you're getting off easy, and everybody else is going to get off and paths of destruction. What he wants them to see uh, is sin is often more of a mindset. This is why he uses analogies of sober and not sober. Uh, and so, like, when he talks about drunkenness, yeah, he's, he's talking about, like, yeah, you could include the actual, like, literal drunkenness of, like, yeah, you shouldn't drink too much. Uh, like, it, sometimes it does, like, sometimes you act out of character if you lose control of your life. Like, there might be some literal there. But more so, what Paul is wanting them to see is their sin and their selfishness in their life creates in them a, an unsober mindset about the world. They're unable to see their own selfishness. They're unable to see their own self-destructive tendencies. They're unable to see how their sin uh, has like, like, uh, uh, corrupted or hurt or damaged the relationships of the people that they're with. 
they're also uh, unable to see how often our sin at its core is us being unable to trust God's goodness. Okay, one of my favorite theologians, Mr. Rolf, like this is, he works on this, I think in a, in a really uh, unique way, but one of the core sins in the garden was when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, the question he poses is, did God really say? What he's trying to do is disrupt the trust that they had, that he was good, that he was their father, that he was God, and what he said was true. And so sin at its core uh, is a disruption of like our mindsets. Okay, his argument in Corinthians uh, chapter 15, uh, by the way, it's like one of his premier chapters on resurrection. He'll do it a couple of times. He'll do it in 1 Corinthians 15. He does it in Romans 10 and 11, some in chapter 5. Um, but 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the premier sort of chapters that Paul writes on resurrections. And what he says about sin in that moment uh, is come back to your senses as you ought. Some and stop sinning, for there are some of you who are ignorant of God. So what he's doing is he's, he's not saying, so some of you have like, y'all are just hot messes and I don't know what to tell you other than like get your act together. What he's saying is there's some of you that haven't quite grabbed a hold that God is good, that he is for you. And so you're willing very quickly to trust other things in order to like, like make, make yourselves feel safe. You're willing to run to this other things. And the problem is with this is the less you trust God, the more you're going to run to sin. The more that you run to sin, often the less we trust God. And it works like this shame cycle. It works very similar to addiction. Uh, my daughter uh, has a book that she reads, we read, uh, called I Know an Old Lady Who Swallowed a Fly. I don't know if anybody's read that book. I almost brought it. I was going to read it to you, but I knew the sermon was going to be long today, so I didn't. Uh, but I remember reading this book. And I was like, this is the most like, profound like, analogy of sin I've actually ever seen. So the book starts, there's an old lady who swallows a fly. We're given no explanation for as to why she does this. Uh, she just swallows the fly. Uh, and then she swallows a spider to get rid of the fly. Well, now she's got the spider, so she swallows a bird to get rid of the spider. Then she swallows a cat to get rid of the bird. Then she swallows a dog to get, deal with the cat. And then a goat to deal with the dog. And then a cow to deal with the the goat, and then finally a horse to, swallow, to deal with the, the cow, and she ends up dying at the end of the book, which actually is really morbid, because there's literally a picture of her dead after she's swallowed, and my daughter asks all the time, why are her eyes, because her eyes are crossed out, she's like, why are her eyes crossed out? I was like, I we watched Lion King the other day, too, and she's like, why, why is Simba's dad asleep? And I was like, I, that's the set of Disney, like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to answer this question right now. Um, but, but what happens is in this book is right, this old woman continues to swallow, this old lady swallows all these other things to deal with the initial problem, which was she swallowed a fly. This, I think, is very, actually a very accurate description of what sin looks like in our life. We tack on sin to deal often with other sin and other sin, like other ways. And at the core of all of this is that we do not trust God. And so then we tack on other things to, to sort of deal with the fact that we don't trust God. And, again, the book was profoundly theological. What is Paul's argument in Romans 6? Sin leads to death. 
And so this, this old lady swallows this fly and like through a progression, like it keeps getting worse and worse, but she's like the, the core problem was she swallowed a fly. The core problem Paul sees is you don't trust God. And so like your app to sin, uh, like leaves you in a really destructive place. And so for Paul, it's so much more of a mindset. You're not thinking clearly. And so when Paul talks about these two groups of people, one met with destruction and one met with life, here's what, here's what I think is actually, what, what, like at his core, in essence, what he's saying. If God is love and we are loved fully, well, let me start by saying this. I don't think that we actually know how to be loved fully. I don't think we know, any of us know how to fully trust love. We try to learn with our spouses. We try to learn with our friends. I want us to try and learn with small groups. But by and large, love and being loved fully, I think, is terrifying. And so when Christ returns, who is love, and he loves us, those of us who feel unfamiliar with how love works, like how to receive love, how to give love, like how God loves, this will feel like, this will feel like destruction, like this is how, I've seen this so many times. Like you sit in, in a room with someone who is an addict and the family is there and they're all saying, I love you, I love you, please quit, like come home. And like the, instead of like seeing this as something that, that like is good and nurturing and whole, like they get defensive about this. Like there's panic. There's, I don't need you, I don't need this. Like y'all don't know what you're talking about. And there's this mindset of like they don't quite know how to be loved. They don't quite know how to receive it. This is, I think, what Paul's talking about here. When God returns, when Jesus returns, and he loves you, I think there's going to be two groups of people. There's going to be those who find this love familiar, and there's going to be people who find this love unfamiliar. That's kind of the language that Paul's using. There's going to be night and day. They're sober and drunk. And as we are unfamiliar with this love, I think it's going to end up feeling destructive, right? If you don't want to be loved and then you're confronted with true love, like it's terrifying. This is true in marriage. Like that's why wedding proposals are so scary, right? It's like there's a moment of like pure vulnerability. Like I'm, I'm in love calling you to me. I'm hoping you're calling me to you. And I, like, like there's something scary and terrifying about love. And so for Paul, these two groups of people, what he's, what he's wanting to remind them is, yes, there's destruction, but this destruction, I think, is very similar to the destruction of addiction. Sin works this way. Right? There's at some point where an addiction takes hold and it doesn't let go, and that path towards destruction is violent and tragic and awful. And so what Paul's saying here is, hey, listen, there's going to be a moment when Jesus returns. This new world order is happening. I want you to be ready for it. Otherwise, it's going to feel unfamiliar to you. It's going to feel like something just came and snapped everything. Right? So, I want, like, from you, I want you to think about, like, suppose you're a person who spent their whole life sort of running over whoever they can to get ahead. You've propped yourself up over, like, power dynamics and things like this. Having power and money and all of this. Imagine a moment in your life that Jesus returns in love and all of those things that you had built your life on 
don't matter that much anymore. Like it would be disorienting. Like it would feel threatening. And so what Paul's driving to his people is, listen, I want you to live in the love that God has for you. So uh, starting uh, in verse 9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For he died uh, for us so that we, uh, whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are alive or dead, we may live together with him. Okay. Listen to how he finishes. Therefore, right? So that word, therefore, uh, is usually how Paul tries to summarize all of his arguments. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact as you are doing. What Paul wants them to see uh, is that the return of Jesus, how all of this summarizes, like how all of this culminates is love. It's going to be the love that Jesus has for them. It's going to be the love that they have for him. It's going to be the love that they have for one another. Don't let this day feel unfamiliar to you. That's what Paul's saying here. So cling to this hope that Jesus, like cling to this hope that Jesus is coming, that he has not overlooked you, and that you and your love, the way that you learn to love one another through the way the Spirit shows you, is going to be, like there's going to be a day where it will feel familiar to you. So, so these analogies uh, of light and darkness, I think, are also very connected to like our experience of shame. And this is why, I actually, like, why in our small groups, I, w- I want us to like press forward in vulnerability and confession with one another. Um, so, you know, uh, like how this works out in my own life, I've thought of this often. Is like, there's there's not much that uh, like some of the people here in this church don't know about me, um, even the things that I feel most shameful of. And the thing is that what happens is when I'm brought into the light, when those things become, like, when other people see that and understand that, like, the shame that I have around that often is dissipated, right? If you've been following the evangelical world, another pretty high-profile pastor recently stepped down through an inappropriate relationship that apparently just wasn't visible for everyone. This, this is how visibility works. And there's not much in my life that, yeah, if somebody were to come like, I found this out about you and I'm going to tell everybody, I wouldn't love that you're going to go sh- like air my dirty laundry to everybody. But also there's not much that members of my small group or close friends here in the church don't already know. And so some of that power of like, oh man, if this gets out, I'll get humiliated is lost when we live in the light. This is what confession is so beautiful, right? So we often view confession as punitive. It's like this moment we have to talk about all the dirty, shameful things we've done, Right? Like, sit down and, like, let me tell you how bad I've been this week. Um, but I think Paul's view of confession and vulnerability and even of sin isn't one where he wants them to isolate and hide in darkness. It's one where he wants them to be brought to light. Because when that happens, it loses its power over them. Sin loses its power over them. Their shame loses its power over them. Um, we're going to close with what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29. Uh, well, actually, we're going to do 30 through 33 as we wrap today. Um, for Paul says, um, so this, this, is, um, this is Paul uh, bringing all of this together. He wants them to see this resurrection of Jesus is coming. And when that happens, all the ways that they have striven to love one another, 
Love never fails. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 13. All the ways that they have loved one another will endure. It will not be wasted. The ways that they've learned to confess their sin to one another, live in the light with one another, forgive one another, accept one another, like this will not be wasted. And so he sees resurrection rather than this young lady that I met in college is where she saw it as sort of like, so, well, because we're kind of waiting for this, nothing else matters here. He sees these two things very closely connected. When Jesus returns, the ways that you've learned to love one another, care for one another, like have mercy on one another, like this is how like Jesus is going to run the world. And so it's going to feel like you're a person of the light. Like already, like you've been confessing your sins and loving one another and forgiving one another. Like this isn't going to feel unfamiliar to you. It's going to be continuation of the story and of the hope that he has already called you into. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, this is where we'll close today, because uh, he's asking this question, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If the dead are raised, if the dead are not raised, so he's talking about resurrection, if it's not going to happen, then yeah, we can live these lies of like, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just live for ourselves. What does it matter? But Paul sees resurrection as a continuation of the story. So when he talks about uh, me like, like facing death daily, uh, giving of myself, pouring myself as a drink offering out to you, I do this because I know resurrection is coming and it's going to be a continuation of how, like the story that we've already been living together and how we've already been loving each other. We'll find that the ways that we have built our lives and built our church and built the ways that we care for it, like it's not going to end in destruction. It's not going to burn away. In fact, it's going to fit right in with what Jesus is, has been doing, is doing, and will do when he returns. So keep building one another up. Encourage one another do not forget that the story that you've been called into will culminate in the beauty of Christ's return and the ways that you are loving and caring and forgiving and pouring yourselves out as a drink offering to one another like I'm doing to you, Paul says. Like, it will not be wasted because the dead are raised. We know that nothing in our life that we do for love will ever be wasted. It will not be destroyed. This is Paul's hope for his church and his people as he talks about the end times. Let me pray for us as we wrap today. Well, Father, we love you. Um, Father, would you just, would you forgive me for just the inadequacy that my own words have in explaining such beautiful things, such holy things? Um, Father, would you forgive me for the ways that I don't trust you? the ways that I don't trust that you're good, the ways that I don't trust that you're working things out, the ways that I try to act in self-preserving ways or selfish ways because I'm not entirely convinced you're coming back and it's going to be a continuation of the story that you've been writing in my life. Father, would you help us as a people uh, be people of light? Father, would you help us to be sober-minded? Father, for the ways that our sin has sunk in deep into us and changes the way that we relate to others, we relate to ourselves, or the ways that we relate to you. Would you give us clarity? We need that, Father. We need your Spirit to show us. 
love. Help us to wait for love, to anticipate love. Father, would you show us how in our lives we can build off of love in a way that will not be destined for destruction. At the end of our lives, it won't feel like a thief came and stole everything that we'd been building because we'd been building our lives around you, around knowing you, worshiping you, glorifying you, loving you. We built our lives around you being our Savior, our God who came back for us, and who loves us. We can trust supremely that you're good. Help us, Father, we need you to do that. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.